reached My Fellow Layman with Lena Ajabani, a show for the uninitiated layman hosted by a fellow layman. I cover stories making headlines, I provide context from scratch, and of course, I do it all in layman's terms. Hello, my fellow layman, and welcome to episode eight. Today, we'll be discussing COVID-19, the beginning of the end. Or is it? (laughs) We here in France are coming out of our second lockdown today, and we're going back into a curfew system. And this episode is being recorded on December 15th, 2020. I'm in the studio today with David. Hi, David. Hi, how are you? I'm good. And you? I'm happy to be almost unlocked. (laughs) Fingers crossed. All right. So I'm sure a lot of you tuning in from wherever you are in the world have uh, corona fatigue. But this episode is for you because we're going to cover corona differently. We're going to give some historical context. Of course, we're going to get a little technical, not too technical. Don't worry. And by the end of this episode, I think you will feel you have a rather insightful understanding of this past year beyond uh, what you've been living yourself. Uh, Also, as this will be the final episode of the year, it's a neat way of wrapping it all up. All right, let's start with the concept of a pandemic. A pandemic is when there is an outbreak of a disease, but on a large scale, and it affects a significant amount of people around the world. Now, has there ever been a global pandemic before? Yes, the Spanish flu, also known as the influenza pandemic. It was a disease uh, now known as the H1N1 virus, and it began spreading around the world towards the end of the First World War in 1918, so a little over a century ago. And how it worked is basically a victim of the Spanish flu would come down with chills, They would suffer breathing difficulties. Uh, Some even got dark rashes on their body. And then their lungs would fill up with fluid and they would die very quickly. It took many lives. Around 50 million people died uh, between 1918 and 1919. So far, this latest coronavirus has infected 72 million people, but only claimed around 1.6 million lives globally. So nowhere as near but still every person who's lost a loved one uh, to this virus has surely suffered a great deal. So, um, of course, my condolences to any fellow layman out there who've been uh, affected by COVID-19. Next, let's break down the concept of a virus. Now, scientifically speaking, and I don't have a scientific background, so I'm going to keep this simple, but I want us to all have a clear understanding that uh, scientifically speaking, a virus is supposed to be the simplest living organism in the world. So simpler than other living organisms like humans or animals or plants. So what it comes down to is it's a piece of genetic code. Now, we're all somewhat familiar with genetics because we have a basic understanding of the concept of DNA. So a virus is a piece of genetic code, if you will. And if you want to get a little more technical, it's genetic matter in addition to enzymes. And then this genetic matter and the enzymes are encased inside a shell made of protein. And that's as far as I'll go. (laughs) Now, this outer shell this protein shell, 
uh, which, by the way, is represented by the outer spikes you see in diagrams uh, when representing a virus. Well, these protein spikes attach themselves onto a living organism's cell to infect it. And then the genetic matter inside the protein cell will use the enzymes to produce replications of the entire virus inside the organism's cell. And then the replications of the virus escape the cell and infect other cells and so on and so forth. And so that's how a virus um, mutates itself and travels from one cell to another and from one, uh, what, we would, what we would call host to another. Now, um, viruses have existed for as long as we as a species can remember. And there are so many different theories out there about the origins of viruses, um, kind of similar to the whole, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg debate, uh, because some studies, for example, suggest that viruses uh, simply existed billions of years ago before life itself and then evolved over time. But other studies suggest that viruses uh, manifested from uh, living cells and then escaped. Uh, so there's no one answer. However, there are a few essential takeaways. First of all, the recent viruses of the 21st century, which caused pandemics, seem to originate in animals, and in particular, bats and birds. They would cross over from animals to humans who are living in close quarters with these animals, so um, domesticating them, farming them, or eating them. Uh, second, normally we as humans have been able to build a natural immunity against viruses, like is the case with the common cold. However, with these recent animal viruses, our immune systems do not recognize them. So they're, they're new or novel. And third, um, viruses today spread like wildfire because of the way that we're living. If you think about it, we're extremely populated. We are currently at 7.8 billion, and we also farm animals a lot. So there's a lot of close proximity, and we travel globally quite often, so it's quick and easy to spread a virus globally. So all these factors kind of counteract the fact that today uh, the science is far more advanced than it was a century ago, and we've experienced viruses in the past, so we have such things as um, virus and disease experts, we have large-scale vaccine manufacturers, but we're still somewhat vulnerable. Now, it's not all doom and gloom. Obviously, there has been a global effort to come up with a vaccine, and we're going to talk about the recent vaccines uh, that came out or which are at the finishing line. But it's important to understand that this is really just the beginning of the end. We're only halfway through, if not less. The road ahead is still very long, and so um, the focus has been on and should continue to be on containing the virus and what's called flattening the curve. This means that suppose 100 people were to get infected, we wouldn't want this to happen in one week, but rather several weeks, so that the healthcare system in place can handle the need for uh, medical supplies, for equipment, for hospital staff. Otherwise, hospitals are forced to resort to what they call battlefield triage, uh, meaning if you're old, uh, you're just left to die rather than uh, prioritizing you and giving you a bed or, say, a respirator. So we don't want that scenario. We want to avoid it. Now, in medical circles, there is such a thing called the basic reproduction number. 
And this is what uh, infectious disease scientists call how many people an infected person will infect on average. So with the seasonal flu, for example, the basic reproduction number is around 1.5, meaning if you have the flu, it's expected that you will most likely infect at least one to two people. Then there is something called the effective reproductive number. And this is how many people an infected person will infect on average, but after human intervention. So, for example, social distancing. So in order to bring this number down, it's important to take immediate action. And the biggest obstacles in these early stages are preparation, so having a contingency plan in place to take immediate action. And then there's the issue of misinformation and lack of trust in national healthcare systems or international health organizations. All right, so let's go back to uh, December 2019, Wuhan, China. It was uh, December 30th when an ophthalmologist, that's an eye doctor, uh, named Li Wen Liang, and I hope I'm saying that right. But Dr. Li had warned other doctors about his observations concerning an outbreak amongst his patients similar to the flu. Now, the security department in Wuhan called him in a few days later, and he was coerced into saying that he had made it all up. Then, uh, a little over a month later, on February 7th, he died after getting infected himself from treating infected patients and he was only 34 years old. So it should be noted that there was an initial denial by the Chinese authorities to recognize this threat before, of course, drastically changing their tone and ordering a strict lockdown with um, growing measures and mobilizing resources from you know, healthcare workers to even the army. Uh, remember, we talked about the effective reproductive number. Well, after all these measures, China was able to reduce the effective reproductive number of COVID from 3.8 to 0.2. So that's impressive. Obviously, these unprecedented measures were less of a challenge for the Chinese government to implement on its people than it would be for other countries because of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party. They're very authoritarian. They're very well informed on the movements of the population. And this was extremely advantageous in this particular scenario in order to act quick and act smart. But of course, some would argue that these same powers are infringing on human rights um, when abused in non-pandemic scenarios. And um, also, it should be noted that China has the advantage of technology, of course, uh, for things like online schooling, medical consultations, uh, for people who need to consult with a doctor, for instance, for other pressing matters other than COVID. Now, the same can't exactly be said about the United States. The handling, at least, of the pandemic has been all over the place because of the inconsistent messaging among states and the politicization of mask wearing. Now, the first recording of a coronavirus case in the United States was on January 20th, 2020. And this was in the state of Washington. But at the time, there wasn't an official testing method approved and put in place. So until there was, precious time was wasted not testing due to bureaucracy issues. Basically, this is when a structure in a country isn't built for its intergovernmental agencies to work together efficiently. 
Now, I thought this story was really cool when I first heard about it. Uh, basically, there was this doctor also in Washington, Dr. Helen Chu. And she was involved in a project for like a good year or so before all this happened. Um, but she got contacted by Washington state officials asking her to use her project to test for coronavirus because her project involved swab samples she had of flu patients. So naturally, they wanted to see if there was, in fact, an outbreak in the state since the first case was already detected there. And they wanted her to create a test as well. Now, she was all for it, but uh, they had to wait for one of the state agencies, which is the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, to apply to another government agency, the Federal Drug Administration, to officially be allowed. And this didn't get approved until a few weeks later in early February. And then there was another mishap because the test kits didn't even work. And so they had to send out new ones. But she, Dr. Chu, didn't want to wait anymore. So she didn't wait for the authority. She basically just went ahead and she detected in late February that there was another positive case already amongst her swab samples, basically proving that the virus had been spreading for weeks. So this shows just how important it is for um, administrative procedures not to drag in a time of crisis. Now, here's the thing. After the Ebola breakout, America had recognized the potential threat of not having their institutions aligned in a time of crisis. So following, there actually was a National Security Council put in place under the Obama administration to help the CDC work with other institutes in a time of crisis. But that council was broken up a year into, you guessed it, the Trump presidency. His national security advisor, John Bolton, decided to dismantle it as part of their defunding campaign, which affected this and many other important elements in order to be prepared for um, such scenarios. Now, like I said earlier, the more blatant issue in the U.S. was downplaying the seriousness of uh, the coronavirus outbreak. President Trump's messaging to the public has been basically a, a series of claims that are contradicting to the information put out by the CDCs. And so unfortunately, his follower base ended up not taking this virus seriously and as such putting their lives and the lives of others in danger. Um, the president himself, of course, ended up getting infected, except that while he gets, you know, first class treatment, the country relies heavily on private health care and therefore huge portions of the population aren't covered. And so testing for the virus or getting uh, getting treated is just not feasible for many. Now, here in France and in Europe as a whole, the approach has been pretty much in between, it's fair to say. Rules haven't been as strict as they were in China, but measures have definitely been more coherent amongst uh, EU member states than among uh, the United States. Now, just to put this into perspective, there are regions in the world, take certain countries in Africa or South America or Southeast Asia, where they have bigger problems in addition to uh, leadership and preparation plans, like not having enough protective gear or ventilators to treat patients, 
um, like leading lives where social distancing is difficult to do when people live in such close proximity and where basic running water is sometimes not a given. So the idea of frequent hand washing, it just isn't possible. All right. Now, before we move on to the vaccine portion of this episode, I want to brush lightly on some important changes uh, we've gone through in and out of lockdown. I say lightly because there's uh, no way I can possibly cover everything in one episode. For one, let's acknowledge the conspiracy theories that came out as because of the virus. Uh, there were those who believed that 5G was responsible. Uh, 5G is the next generation of internet technology. Um, the argument has something to do with the higher frequency radio waves, but this was dismissed by the WHO, the World Health Organization. Another theory was that the Chinese government designed this virus uh, in a laboratory as a biological weapon, but there is no evidence supporting this theory either. Um, and it should be understood that markets of wildlife are common all over Asia, whether for you know, delicacy eating purposes or for traditional medicinal practices. But it is believed that this was the context in which COVID-19 manifested in bats and got transmitted to humans. There's no proof that this was in fact the case, but either way, uh, these markets unfortunately inhibit the perfect conditions for disease transfer due to animals being uh, locked up in small spaces. They're also urinating and defecating on each other and then uh, being slaughtered on the spot with all sorts of you know, fluids flowing. Now, another thing I'd like to acknowledge is mental health. Um, our behavior change was significant during this time. I mean, take toilet paper. Back in March, uh, the video of two people fighting over uh, toilet paper went viral, and this took place in a supermarket in Sydney, Australia. But in truth, this irrational behavior of wanting to stock up on commodities like uh, pasta because it has a long shelf life is the kind of thing uh, one would do in preparation for a zombie apocalypse, you know, where you, you're afraid you won't be able to leave the house. So obviously being in a pandemic um, has affected our behavior, and we've been lucky uh, to be able to use the internet, to Skype, to Zoom, um, so that even though we're socially distancing, uh, we're really more physically distancing than socially distancing. But either way, um, isolation is very harmful. Uh, lockdown might have helped the environment and made us rethink the way we work. Perhaps, you know, even some organizations will encourage like a semi work from home model in the future. But as, you know, humans, we need to interact. So being cooped up at home and missing out on normal life experiences, in addition to living in so much uncertainty and growing anxious, growing bored, growing frustrated. So remember, it's important to have someone to talk to about what you're going through. Now, another thing I want to acknowledge is how this disease has affected ethnic minorities more, um, at least in the developed world. Uh, they could find themselves at a disadvantage simply because they might come from low-earning households and therefore without sufficient health care coverage. 
Um, another issue could also be the fact that many uh, mi minority jobs require being exposed to people and not the kind of job that can be performed from home, which makes them more, more vulnerable or more susceptible to getting infected. And also, interestingly, certain diseases like uh, cardiovascular diseases, for example, are more common genetically in certain minority ethnicities, and they most likely make COVID-19 symptoms more severe. And finally, I want to acknowledge the economy and the toll COVID-19 has taken on it. Um, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, interruption was oil. When the price actually went down to a negative figure at one point, uh, when a barrel was once worth $140. But governments in general faced and are still facing today uh, difficulty in how to come out of lockdown. How does one lift restrictions while keeping the spread of the virus low and keep the economy going? Obviously, we've now seen a second wave of infections, and we're most likely going to see a third. But either way, less people are working, so tax revenues are down, countries are facing recessions, and so they have been releasing financial aid, but this comes at a cost. And this cost is basically being in debt. Now, economists are of the opinion that this debt is the lesser of two evils. The other evil being the would-be effect of governments not helping and instead allowing economies to drastically uh, shrink and more people to go out of work long term. So acquiring some debt is more favorable uh, so long as it's wisely spent and so long as it doesn't spiral out of control like, you know, with crazy interest rates. Okay, so now let's talk uh, vaccines. <music> What is a vaccine? A vaccine does uh, one of two things according to how efficient it is. It can block a person from getting infected altogether, or it can at the very least reduce sickness symptoms. Obviously, it's more preferable to produce a vaccine which completely blocks infections. All right, I'm going to give you a vaccine 101, so pay attention. A traditional vaccine is basically a safe introduction of a weaker version of the virus. So simply a part of the virus, it is jabbed into the body in order to activate your immune system to respond. So how does this happen? Basically, a virus, which, by the way, is considered a pathogen, and bacteria is also a pathogen, but anyway, a virus has something called antigens. And this is the part that the immune system will first detect, will first recognize. And when it does, the immune system starts creating antibodies in response. And why do we need these antibodies? Well, because they, in turn, will team up with other parts of the immune system to destroy the antigens and the virus altogether, as well as any infected cells. And then finally, the immune system will create a kind of record so that if the same virus threatens the body again, the body will remember what to do. Make sense? And that's exactly what Mr. Pasteur discovered here in Paris. That's true. Yes. Now, how is a vaccine created? Well, 
on average, it took recent vaccines 10 years to hit a market. So the speed to get this vaccine ready within two years is historic. Now, you have everything being thrown at this because of the strong political movements to get it done, most obviously because of the economic impact this is having, uh, if not for the loss of life. So you have everything from money to science being thrown at the problem in order to get to a vaccine. Now, the stages of producing a vaccine are the following. First, there's what we call a preclinical stage, and this is the research and development stage, which generally extends over years, and tests are usually done on animals. And then there is the second stage, and this is basically divided into three steps. You have uh, step one, where around 50 non-infected people have to opt to take the vaccine shot. And the purpose here is to check that it's safe, so no horrible reactions, and to check, of course, how does the body react to the vaccine. And here, we're talking specifically about the immunity response in the form of producing antibodies, which we just talked about. So basically, the level of antibodies is measured, and this is called the immunogenicity. And then step two is when you do the same thing, but with a bigger second round of volunteers. So rather than just 50 people, this time you're testing 500 to 2,000 people. And then step three, you test 20 to 30,000 people. But here's the catch. Only half of the volunteers in this step will get the vaccine shot, and the other half, they get a placebo. So basically any you know, non-harmful but completely useless substance for those taking it to only think that they're taking the vaccine. Now, the best vaccine to hope for is one with a high level of effectiveness, and then it has to get licensed for use via national regulators, which during pandemics can also be internationally recognized according to standards. Now, obviously, it's not good to rush a vaccine. It's being built to, you know, potentially be dosed out to the millions. So you don't want to put out something that is potentially harmful. Um, for example, back in August, uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, came out uh, to announce that Russia had now uh, approved the first vaccine against COVID-19, uh, which he had named Sputnik V, uh, referencing to the launch of the world's first um, satellite back in the 50s. Um, it was an accomplishment of the Soviet Union, and so he was trying to draw a parallel of achievement. Uh, but the thing is, this vaccine hadn't been through the third phase, um, and so it's not likely going to be approved by uh, any other country, nor did the World Health Organization accredit it. It actually might, uh, if studies prove it's efficient. Absolutely. So when he came out about it, it hadn't gone through the third phase trial. Now, uh, it's actually reported to be 92% effective. So we're going to have to wait and see. Mm -hmm. Now, let's get to know the vaccines that have reached the third phase trial. And some of them have even been approved uh, and started being injected. So we have basically the front runners. Uh, you have Oxford slash AstraZeneca. And this is a collaborative work between the University of Oxford and the British multinational pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. And they use a method where they're injecting a virus with a very similar protein spike 
to trigger the immune system. And it's actually a weakened version of a common cold virus from chimpanzees. Yikes. <laughs> but it's been modified. Whatever works. Whatever works, basically. Just get us out of this. And its effectiveness uh, basically is at 70%, uh, and it has to be given in two doses. But there is a promise of it perhaps reaching 90%. Um, basically, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be stored at very cold temperatures. So this Basically, is, a regular vaccine, like any other vaccine. I think so, yes. A basically. fridge is fine. Yes, so this is mm. going to be the easiest to use, I think. Um, next, we have Moderna. And now Moderna is an American biotechnology company, and they're using a method that's called RNA, an RNA vaccine. And basically what they do is they insert genetic material to produce the spike protein to trigger the immune system. And it's also given in two doses, four weeks apart, and it's supposed to be 94.5% effective. Uh, this one is stored in minus 20 degrees Celsius, so still not that bad. Next, you have the Pfizer slash BioNTech. Now, Pfizer is a U.S. pharmaceutical company, and BioNTech is a German biotechnology company. So it's another collaborative work. And their method is also via the RNA vaccine, the genetic coding approach. And this has a 95% effectiveness rate, and it also has to be given in two doses, uh, three weeks apart. Uh, the problem here is storage. Vaccines need to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius. But this vaccine was the first to get approved by the UK back in December 2nd. And already by December 8th, they had started injections. Uh, but the UK authorities had advised that people with severe allergies not take this vaccine because uh, two healthcare workers had, had uh, bad reactions. And uh, just yesterday, uh, the US and Canada started rolling out the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. The odds are that the European Union will approve it by next week. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, are you signed up for any experiment? Uh, no, count me out. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the record, though, will you take the vaccine? If it allows to travel and to live a normal life, probably, yes. Mm -hmm. I will. I have no issue. It is scary, <laughs> but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take one for the team. I'm not too sure. I have to wait and see. You wait and see. Okay. All right. Now, other vaccines are in the making in Russia, in China, in the UK. So we're going to keep hearing more results in the next coming weeks. So, we, you know, stay tuned. We also don't know how long will the effects last. I mean, will we have to take these every few years? Um, this is very much new territory here. So, you know, it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> Are you going to talk about the fiasco of the French vaccine? <laughs> no, tell me about that. Well, the French um, were very proud to have the uh, Pasteur and Sanofi working on a vaccine project. Um, and then a few days ago, they announced that um, it was not efficient enough in the trials. So they postponed the uh, uh, final stages to the end of uh, 2021, oh which is God. really late. Um, so it's, it was quite embarrassing. Uh, Sanofi stocks dropped, um, you know, because it's it's a disappointment. 
But in fact, what they found out in the phase three trials is that it's it's less efficient than they thought for elderly people, but not for the rest of the population. But because they're actually targeting el- elderly people, they're the prime target of a vaccine, then they have to, you know, absolutely start over, completely start over. I just can't believe it would have to be so, delayed for that long. Yeah, it's it's not going to be ready in in the next year, basically, in the next 12 months. And France was banking on this to vaccinate its population. So that's really annoying. And so the doses are not going to be enough for this year in France. And also, a lot of the media have been saying that people are not actually willing to get vaccinated. Uh, at least half of the people are saying they're not going to do it. But if 50 people, 50% of the people do get vac- vaccinated, plus the 10 or so percent that already have been in contact with the virus, you're reaching almost mass immunity. So it's 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 all right. We need seventy percent to reach. Yeah, between sixty and seventy, depending on who who you're talking to. They don't really know. Yes, I mean I don't know any anti-vaxxers myself, but I I never had an issue with vaccines, and I'm I'm happy to share it to you know follow the science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean if if scientists say it's safe, it's should be safe. Either way, when people want to take their vacations, they're going to take their vaccines because (laughs) I think there's going to be a system where, you know, airlines are going to be like, show me proof of your vaccine. Yeah, either airlines or countries. Or countries. I know a few Asian countries have already announced that only vaccinated people will be able to enter. There you go. So that's going to be motivation enough for people to get vaccinated. (laughs) At least for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for that enlightenment. Now, what's next? Um, Well, okay, it's no simple task, uh, at least not at this scale. The next step after the vaccines rollout is basically the rollout itself. So you have manufacturing. Uh, Vaccine manufacturing facilities are currently being built. Uh, Usually they're paid for by pharmaceutical companies and sometimes by philanthropists. I mean, we've seen many headlines on this. What was it, Dolly Parton? as well, (laughs) who's been uh, donating to the vaccine research. And then there is um, the issue of storage. Uh, These vaccines have to be kept at a very low temperature, so it takes special transportation companies working together. And finally, the biggest problem is the politicization of the vaccine. So the America First strategy poses a danger simply because um, no one is safe unless everyone is safe. Now, there is a global collaboration project called COVAX, and this was built to speed up the development of a vaccine and to share it fairly amongst the member nations, uh, with the priority, of course, of giving the vaccine to healthcare workers and to those who are most vulnerable. And this includes 185 countries, so that represents 90% of the world's population, and it has a benchmark of 38 billion U.S. dollars to run this operation. But about half of these countries will have to depend on aid to fund their vaccines, or they'll basically be getting them at much lower prices. Now, both the Moderna vaccine and the Oxford-AstraZeneca signed deals with COVAX, but not enough. A lot is being purchased by wealthy countries. There is a clear monopoly going on. And the U.S. and the U.K. and even countries here in the EU are making deals with uh, Pfizer, BioNTech. 
Russia and the U.S., of course, are not part of COVAX and are most likely going to put the well-being of their citizens first. Um, their argument being, you know, how do you expect me to help others uh, before I can help myself? But predictions show that we won't have enough vaccines for the entire world's population until 2024. Remember, taking the vaccine saves us from the virus, but it doesn't uh, stop from transmitting it. And so, so far, it looks like it's going to be a first-class citizen, second-class citizen scenario, unfortunately. And this is going to be the new challenge. So don't grow complacent now that you understand uh, the important role that you as an individual can play, uh, wear your mask, wash your hands, and uh, limit your physical mingling. All right, and that wraps up today's episode. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Lina Ajabani, coming to you from Paris. And I'd like to wish uh, all my fellow laymen a very happy holiday period and a very happy new year. Uh, if you're in the spirit of giving, be sure to check out my Patreon link in the show notes uh, where you can pledge a donation to support the show. And if you're a little cash poor this holiday, you can still support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Um, you can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at My Fellow Layman. And you can, of course, tell your friends about the show. Um, don't forget, I'm also trying to improve the show. It's a process, so feedback is appreciated. So you can head to um, www.myfellowlayman.com to leave a message. And I hope you'll join me again next year for another episode of My Fellow Layman, available wherever you download your podcasts or on YouTube or on air in Paris on WRP. That's World Radio Paris, which, by the way, you're also welcome to visit its website, uh, worldradioparis.com, and donate. It's thanks to WRP that I'm able to record here in the studio and make these YouTube videos. And uh, that's about it, David. Yep, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you in 2021. And be safe.